Thank you, Noah, and thank you for all your work in putting this together. I don't know about all the technology you know about and you're helping us to deliver this today. I'm Bill Gabovich. I'm General Counsel of Primark US. And on behalf of myself and my co-chair of the DEI Steering Committee at the BBA, Carla Reeves from Goldston Stores, we want to welcome everybody to Allyship in Action. We really appreciate you taking the time to hear about this subject today. And we're joined by really great panelists. And I want to personally thank each and every one of them um, for being here and sharing their time and their wisdom. Um, Stacey Bass, Pat Gallagher, and Zane Fernandez. Um, and with that, we'll get right to it. I'm going to turn it over to our moderator, Stacey Bass. Thank you, uh, Bill. Uh, as uh, was said, my name is Stacey Best. I'm the Executive Director of Lawyers Concerned for Lawyers, um, the Lawyer Assistance Program here in Massachusetts. I do want to thank the BBA and especially uh, Bill and Carla and the DEI uh, subcommittee for inviting me to participate in this very important program. Uh, based on uh, our pre-work uh, and conversation, I expect it to be a very rich um, dialogue. I understand from the last program that there was a lot of conversation about um, very concrete and specific steps that individuals can take or people can take with respect to um, allyship. Uh, in our work here so far, we've been uh, diving into ways that people can think about um, broadening their perspective on allyship so that as they go about taking those concrete steps, they can not only think uh, more creatively, um, but also look for other opportunities that they may not have previously encountered. Um, before we begin, I'm going to ask my conversation partners, and I do see this as a conversation. I'm going to ask um, my conversation partners, um, Pat, we'll start with you and Zane to introduce yourselves and give us a sentence or two um, uh, in terms of how you intersect with uh, allyship in this topic. So starting with you, Pat, Go ahead. Great. Thank you very much, Stacey. And, and um, thank you, everyone, for, for taking the time out of your day to be here. Um, I, I think this is an incredibly important topic, and, and particularly um, in, in the legal setting, where I think historically um, I approach this from the context of, you know, a, a lot of the legal field has maybe struggled with this area. Um, I'm a real estate lawyer at Goldston and Stores. Um, I uh, am on our firm's inclusionary advisory committee. Um, this is something that to me is very near and dear. And, and I think like with being a lawyer, um, it, it, it takes practice. Um, and, and I think, uh, so I'm here to, you know, to listen and, and to hopefully contribute to the conversation, but, um, you know, by and large, to listen and, and try and learn from the conversation today. Hi, everyone. My name is Zane Fernandez. I'm an associate at Ropes and Gray here in Boston. Uh, and I'm also currently seconded at a client at a private equity firm, and we'll be returning to Ropes in January. Uh, the reason why this conversation is so important to me, and I'm very excited to, to get into the nitty gritty with Pat and Stacy here, uh, is because as I'm starting off my career in this profession, um, which we all know is a traditionally white um, elitist profession and has many problems still from that historical trajectory. Um, as I'm starting out, I'm trying to navigate how what my role 
is in changing his profession and how, because this is a very big overtaking undertaking um, to redistribute equity and fairness and everything within this profession, we're going to need help to do that. So I think allyship is key to that. So I'm excited to dig in. All right, so let's do that. Um, uh, Pat and Zane, as we talked about um, allyship last week, working up uh, to this program, uh, I think each of us ran into some unspoken feelings that we had about allyship, but that sort of we assumed in the conversation. Pat, I'm wondering if you could start us off with some of the inner dialogue that you have about allyship uh, and when you think about yourself as an ally. Sure, um, and, and thanks for the question. I, I think, um, I mean, to me, I, I am a white male um, heterosexual attorney in a field that um, historically favors each of those and particularly all three of those categorizations. Um, and, and so to me, I, I think it, it's very important to be thought of as an ally, but I also don't want to think of myself as an ally, you know, in the sense of, you know, I, I think that's not for, for me to necessarily say about myself. I, I think, you know, we, um, I think we need to challenge ourselves and I need to challenge myself on a regular basis to be a little bit inward and say, how am I approaching interactions, particularly with people who are underrepresented um, in my firm or in client settings or in other interactions um, on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and how do I do better at that? But I, I think it's, um, I mean, it, 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 it's humbling to be asked to be on this panel, um, but at the same time, I don't want to be held up as, um, you know, knowing everything because I certainly don't. Um, I'm, I'm certainly still learning. So thank you. Um, so Zane, as you um, hear Pat's answer and as you think about um, the shift in culture that you mentioned, um, where, and as you ponder these questions, what are your thoughts about um, whether you are a beneficiary or have been a beneficiary of allyship to this point in your career and what you might do with um, your experiences? Yes, yeah, so that's a good question and something I have been thinking about these past couple of weeks in preparation for this panel. So originally I was I was thinking of allyship in terms of white allyship, um, which maybe that is the, the natural inclination for a lot of people here to think of. Um, I, I had always thought of it as white people, especially white cis heteronormative people um, have a lot of the power dynamics in these social circles that we're in, especially within the legal profession. And so the burden is on them to be the ally and, and help advocate for people who don't have those, uh, are not within those groups and not and haven't grown up in those circles. Um, but then as we started to talk, we started to unpack the idea of who is an ally. Does an ally have to 
share the same identity as you? Do they have to be a different identity? Um, and, and questions like that. And so that's been pushing me to think and broaden the lens of what an ally is. And so when I think of it in these broader terms, I, I have been the recipient of allyship. Um, and when I think of it, it's the, the ally has always been a black woman. Um, and so I, I, I thought that was interesting. I personally have not experienced or witnessed uh, allyship at this stage in my career um, from an ally who is white, um, but I am early on in my career. So I do believe there's opportunity for that. It's sort of interesting because um, as I was thinking about the topic, I was thinking about an experience that I've been having recently um, and also um, in my role as an attorney in a relatively flat organization, but where I did not have a, a position of authority um, as a managerial sort of supervisor, other than say with the secretary. Um, but I found myself in uh, a number of instances dealing with circumstances that had arisen with, a, with um, employees of color, feeling as though it was incumbent upon me as the sole black attorney in the office to step forward and provide assistance. And then, as I say, more recently, being in a situation, not in a legal community, not in a legal context, but as a chair of a board um, dealing with an artist uh, who would come under fire, a, uh, a non-binary artist, hip hop artist, where so the combination of factors of artistry um, and uh, non-binary um, um, sexuality and gender um, arose and found myself stepping forward um, as the chair, as a person of some power and authority um, to say that the attack on this person was personal. Um, and so that raised for me the question um, of what is allyship versus sponsorship or mentorship? Um, and am I, can I consider myself an ally um, when I share the identity or some aspects of the identity of those that I consider uh, myself to be helping? Um, so what are your thoughts, um, Pat? I know we talked about whether the definition of allyship is too narrowly construed um, if we, we're thinking of it. Um, and I think in terms of the origins from which it comes, right? Like race and slavery and, you know, helping allies, helping to um, abolish um, uh, those kinds of oppressive uh, systems. Right, and, and I, think, I, think, I think race is, and slavery is the starting point because that established um, the way that, um, you know, today in our society, I think we have the power dynamic between people who are white um, and people who are not white. And I think also, especially in the, in the law firm context, you know, when we're talking about allyship, and, and I, I speak from the law firm context because that's my experience, but, you know, certainly this can apply to other types of legal employers. Um, I think we're talking an industry that has historically put 
people who look like me, um, you know, ahead to the detriment uh, of others who don't look like me or who don't identify the same as I do. Um, and so I think talking about what is allyship and, and what does that mean and what are we talking about? To me, I think we need to be talking about it as specifically trying to orient, you know, what we're doing toward people who are underrepresented and who are disadvantaged because of that. So, um, though, does that mean, you know, back to my question, uh, what, you know, do I, do I get to pat myself on the back as an ally for the examples that I've given? Is that allyship or is that mentorship? Like, what is that? I mean, I think the example that, that you were discussing to me is you are identifying someone who is the other. They they are they are, you know, certainly at a power disadvantage in that conversation. Um, and you being a person who have I mean, your voice carries authority in that room. Um, so I think what you were doing there to me is more than mentoring, or it's more than, um, you know, I, I think it's advocacy for someone who um, is, you know, advocacy for someone who um, is underrepresented. You know, I, I think to me, that is what we should be talking about. You know, in terms of allyship, that that's how I would define it, or one one element of it. So, um, as I as we talk, I hear the word power um, come up multiple times, and I would agree that part of what I thought in those moments was I have some power. And there is something going on here that is not right. And so I have a responsibility if I see something to say something. Um, and Zane, you know, what do you think of that approach? Are there, is, is that all right? Um, or are there factors that you would consider in terms of a taking that approach? Um, and then I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have a follow up. So I'm going to let you have that part of the question first. Okay. Um, I think that seeing something and saying something is, when it comes to allyship, is probably the most effective way. Um, because I, I was actually speaking to Bill about this last night, um, where allyship, it, it's something that we're always trying to get better at, something that we're always learning, when can we intervene? And a lot of times when it's the heat of the moment or just in a, in an everyday situation, there's these small windows of when you can actually organically speak up and, and bring up a point. Sometimes you can circle back afterwards, but um, then that could bring its own complications. So, uh, I think I think the seeing something and saying something in those moments are really helpful, but I do think there are probably some situations where um, maybe that person would be uncomfortable with somebody speaking on their behalf, or um, or maybe you you as the ally don't know exactly what language to use or 
or or um, or the context to to frame this this certain point in. So um, I think there are some considerations, but you had a really good example when we talked. Do you want to share that? Yeah. So um, one example is uh, having a coworker and and friend who is non-binary, um, and so pronouns in the workplace, it's it can be a, a complicated thing or just in personal spaces. Um, and so when when somebody, when you personally know like, hey, this person's pronouns are, are this, um, but then other people are referring to them as whatever pronouns they're putting on that person, however they're perceiving that person, um, and you're seeing misgendering happen in real time, um, I think that's a delicate balance because of course, when you see somebody being misgendered, you do want to speak up and say, hey, no, this person's pronouns are this, or at least um, what you were mentioning, Stacey, last time we spoke of kind of um, carefully or creatively navigating that situation and, and sort of emphasizing um, the correct pronouns in a, in a natural way, rather than saying, hey, these are the pronouns to use. Um, but in the situations that I've been in um, regarding this example, I I wanted to pull my friends to the side and just ask, hey, how would you want me to proceed here? Do you want me to correct people or or, or what have you? And and they were saying like, no, that I I don't want to bridge that that conversation in the workplace. I would rather just like, however people are taking me, let them um, perceive me in that way and and keep moving. Um, so it's instances like this where sometimes somebody's identity is very personal. And even though it does have these outward implications of how people are perceiving you and talking to you and treating you on the day to day, um, there may be some things that either that person's working through internally or um, just would rather keep things private or, or figure something out down the line rather than have you speak up in that moment. So Pat, <clears throat> hearing that, um... As you think about your power as a white heterosexual male, um, what do you do with that? So a person says, no, I'd rather not um, make a, a scene, um, but yet there's this very public thing that is taking place. How do you work with that um, in your role or in your identity um, to find strategies to nonetheless be an ally to this person. I mean, Zane, you aren't saying that your friend said to you, I don't want an ally. Mm -hmm. You're not saying Correct. that. Correct. They appreciated that I asked and, and was thought. So there was first the appreciation that you were, um, you saw, you saw them and you saw what was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Pat, I'm wondering, what else you might do in a situation like that? I think, um, I mean, I, I think, let's take the example where it's, it's a coworker and it's someone who, um, you know, you're gonna continue to work with and, and come across. Um, you know, I, I think to Zane's point, um, you know, I think we're, we're too often in, you know, you, you jump to conclusions and, and, you know, at the risk of, um, you know, doing too much or overreacting in a way that's going to make that person uncomfortable. Um, so I do think the most important thing, because, you know, in that circumstance, it's not always going to be someone who is your best friend and you know exactly how they're going to think about it. 
And even if it is your best friend, you might not necessarily know how they would want you to advocate for them in a public setting in the workplace. Um, you know, because I, I, I think, you know, someone might want to have a different in, in a professional setting, like, you know, it, it's different than among friends. Um, but I think the next step, if it's a person who you work with, who you're coming across, um, is to take opportunities, um, particularly if you're someone who has, um, you know, who is more senior and, and if you're working with, and if this person is more junior to you, um, when you're in meetings to call people by name and to use their correct pronouns. And, and, and I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm terrible at names. Um, and, and so I, I try in conversations as much as I can to use someone's name because it's how I remember. And, and, and you know, when, when you're meeting someone, it's how I remember who, what their name is and who I'm talking to. But I think it also reinforces identity um, when you use someone's name. And so, you know, if you're in meetings to use their name, to use what you know to be their correct pronouns. Um, and to, you know, try and do it in a way that is not um, putting them in a spotlight, but that is putting a little bit of emphasis in a way um, so that they can feel seen, but not, um, you know, put, um, you know, put up in a place where it makes them uncomfortable. Well, so that raises a question about what is the emphasis of the action that you take? Is the emphasis, like in terms of allyship, right? Is the emphasis merely to bring comfort to the individual who needs an ally? Or is it also to effectuate some change, right? And so maybe it's also an instance whether um, you know, in the presence of, of the individual or not, you might say something about um, how important it is to you to use correct pronouns or something like that. It brings attention, it, it, it brings, if there's gonna be any pressure, it's gonna be on you for saying that. Like, Pat, are you a lefty liberal? What's up with that, right? Like it brings attention to you potentially, but it also gets across the point um, that pronouns are important. Right, well, and I, I think too, you know, having the initial conversation with this person is important so that you understand, um, but also to follow up because if something is a recurring problem, you know, you might come back to them and, and say, you know, do you want me to, to mention something, you know, privately to the individual who is using incorrect pronouns, um, and and because it, it could get to a point where, you know, they they say actually, you know, I'd like you to do that and would would appreciate that, but I, I think having the follow up conversation is important as well. Sure. Um, what sorts of things? Um, uh, I want to ask you first, Pat but I'm also interested in your answer as well, Zane. What sorts of things draw you into the role of an ally? I think to me, um, it's a couple things. I think, um, I think part of it, you know, has less to do with trying to really focus on if someone in this in the room is underrepresented, so much as to say, 
you know, this is a really hard profession. Um, and, um, you know, when I was in law school and trying to find internships and, and trying to find a job and, you know, building a career, there are a lot of people who didn't need to help me who did. I think that's different from allyship. I think, you know, that is more in kind of the mentorship category of, of things, but, you know, there, there's certainly some overlap between those. Um, I, my first internship was interning at the land court and uh, I had no business with my GPA of getting an internship with a, a judge and um, Judge Karen Shire said, I don't care what your GPA is, you know, based on your cover letter and, and you know, your interest and, you know, it, you're genuine and, and that's what she was looking for. And, and I don't think I am where I am today, if not for that initial act, um, you know, by someone who was certainly in a position of power. Um, and, and so I think having had that opportunity in a lot of what I'm trying to do as now a more senior associate, I think it's important to reach out to people who are in positions who are junior to you, most especially. Um, and then I think the other driving point is, you know, and, and I think you can see it more on Zoom now that, you know, if you're in meetings with a client or with your coworkers, perhaps from other offices and, you know, in the Zoom tiles, it's, you know, just overwhelmingly white or, um, you know, it, it and, and, and just thinking about, you know, how do my black colleagues feel about being the only black people in the room? Um, or, you know, many calls, I mean, real estate is predominantly a male field. Um, if there are women on the team, you know, whether legal or, or on the business side, I mean, it, it's noticeable now on Zoom and you can see that. And, and so I think, you know, trying to be more, you know, trying to acknowledge that, um, you know, to not just overlook that and to do something about it. So um, I, I want to come back to you, Pat, but but first I want to get Zane your impressions for, on anything that Pat said, but also um, in, in terms of your own um, opportunities you've had to be an ally. What was it that drew you into the role of ally? So I agree with what Pat said, where mentorship sort of overlaps with allyship, but there is some distinguishing features of allyship. I would also say sponsorship is, is similar to that as well. So with Pat's example of the judge, to me, that would be sponsorship rather than allyship, but I guess this is how we're all defining it personally. Um, so while I have had great uh, mentors and sponsors, and and I believe that I've served those roles as well for other people, um, I don't think I've, I don't think I've had, hmm, I, I've had smaller opportunities to be an ally, but I guess when we're talking about these power dynamics and navigating in the workplace and bringing a real issue up to, or I don't want to say real, but bringing up an issue to a, a higher up or something of that nature on somebody's behalf, I haven't been, I haven't been able to have that experience yet. Um, 
I do think one thing that is helpful to eventually be able to do that is to be able to see the power dynamics at play in a workplace. Um, it, it, that sounds so simple, but at the same time, it can be so hard for many people, even for me in certain situations. Um, and so I think as we get better at pushing our assumptions and questioning why are things happening this way um, and trying to see where the power lies and, and why certain people aren't speaking up about certain issues, because my my how I'm looking at it is sometimes in the workplace, you wouldn't know anything is wrong because nobody's saying anything or you wouldn't know somebody has an issue because everybody's just trying to not rock the boat, doesn't want to come off a certain way. And especially for people of color, um, uh, LGBTQ folks, uh, it is it is difficult to kind of hold all of these realities and and all the, the ways that you feel in the workplace and actually be genuine or transparent about that um but if we're if we're trying to have these open and honest conversations i think that would then allow us to spot these power dynamics see the discomfort rather than everybody just kind of trying not to rock the boat you know so sort of interesting again the word power comes up and when i think about the example of myself um acting as an ally it really was after many years of practice. If it's not a, 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 a obvious um, to you all, I'm the ground dom on this call, right? Like <laughs> nearly 30 years of practice. Um, and that was the power that I felt that I had. My Blackness wasn't powerful. If anything, to some extent, it made me feel as though I was potentially at risk. Um, and so, um, that when we were having this conversation before, um, the issue of power and what are the elements of power um, that we hold within our identities, especially if we're not um, in a position of authority. Um, Pat, um, you were talking about how we should be more pointed about the definition of allyship with respect to race. Um, what power dynamic what is the power if you will um do you see with with race and how would you encourage people to respond to it um i i think i think the power dynamic is one of you know again you know it, and and this really has its origins in slavery i think the power dynamic goes to black and white um, and, and um, so in other words, I'm black, that's not helping me. You're white, but it does help you. Absolutely. And helps you, gives you power. That's a, a facet of power in allyship. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think. Is there any time other... when it, that's not true that you can think of? I. And I, I, I struggled over this when we, when we talked about this. I, I think that there are, you can be in a room where all things considered, you know, or I can be in a room where all things considered, um, you know, I, I am, there are people who are, you know, I, I am at a different power dynamic in the room, despite my whiteness. But I think all things equal, if you have two people who are at the same level and one is white 
and one isn't. I think that is where the, the power dynamic is in almost any setting, maybe in any setting. I mean, I certainly think as you were saying that it made me think of the idea of currency or idiosyncratic credit, right? Like, so if I, or, or cards, the poker game, right? If, if I got a pair, but you got a, a straight flush, um, we're in the same game and I can put in my chips, but they're the combination of those things give you more or less leverage, it sounds like, right? So we talk about intersectionality um, in, the, um, in the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion, but it sounds like we can talk about intersectionality in the concept of allyship as well, and considering where um, what aspect of my personality gives me more or less power that I can and should use on behalf of someone else? I, I think so. I, and I mean, I, I think it comes down to, you know, there's a natural inclination to be drawn to people who look and act and think like you. And I, I think I think we, you know, we talk about it in in the uh, you know sense of politics, right? A lot of people are in in a political bubble where they interact with people, and you know, that's not controversial to say. Um, I think we're we're certainly you know consciously unconsciously drawn to people who look like us as well, um, and I think that holds true whether in the workplace or in a personal setting. And I think when you have, in particular, a legal field that is you know, certainly majority white, probably a very large majority white in many workplaces, um, I think the challenge is not, so I, and, and you know, I think there's an inclination maybe to feel like as a white person to say like, do I feel guilty or should I feel guilty? Um, and, and I think the challenge is to not feel guilt at being white, um, but to also not ignore the role that my whiteness or that a white person's um, race plays in that workplace setting. Zane, your thoughts about that? So one question that comes to mind, so agreed that it would be helpful rather than white people seeing this situation and just feeling guilt and, and all the emotions and things that come attached to that, but actually channeling it into trying to create some positive change, that would be beneficial. But I, I wonder, like, in order to get to feeling guilt or feeling motivated to change something, you have to first notice it. And so I wonder how many white people in the legal profession in the workplace, I do believe it's changing and it's great to see, but how many white people in these settings are even first noticing that fact, or maybe they notice it, but they just like push it in the back of their mind and they're like, this is what it is. This is the industry I'm in and keep it pushing. And, and that's about it. 
Um, but do you think? But do you think that part of what is at play is that people, um, a question that like you said, do they notice? Maybe it's too painful to notice. It becomes a problem if I notice. That that because that would challenge a lot of what people hold to be true or what they feel comfortable with. Um, so it would be uncomfortable to notice. I, I believe it would be for many people. But it's sort of interesting because, and maybe I don't have this problem because I'm Black, but when I, as I say, am in a situation where I'm dealing with a power dynamic, I'm not a person in charge and I am taking a risk. What is it that, like what what is the what is the key to allowing me to see myself whatever power i have to contribute that to the solution rather than rely on i don't have power which sort of is the question here right like if we're talking about do i feel guilt or do i lean in what is the what is the thing that what is something that might help me toggle to see that I have power and that I need to use that for good? Yeah, that's that's a tough question. I think realizing that we all have power in some way to just think up as a human being is is powerful in and of itself. I think maybe the way to toggle that is to which is really hard to do, but to let go of any any perceived consequence that could happen. Like if I say this, um, maybe this partner won't want to work with me, or maybe this gets out publicly and then my name is tarnished and I, I don't know what it could be, but some negative consequences that you're holding in your head of like, if I don't want to speak up because X, Y, and Z could happen to me, letting go of that which is really hard because as humans we're trying to survive we're trying to provide for our families and 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 just be happy in our own personal lives um so we don't want to put that at risk a lot of the times but letting go of those those fears and and just realizing you do have the power to speak up and just and be a good human being and and fight for justice in these in these smaller instances of everyday life um but that that is a difficult thing so Pat, you brought it up. So <laughs> what do you do with that conversation? I think um, I think it takes time and practice and listening. I, I think it's really, really hard as someone who is you know just starting or, and who is very junior. Um, I think it's hard. It takes a lot of courage to um to speak out because presumably you know you're either speaking out for someone who might be senior to you um and you don't want to put yourself out there you don't want to embarrass that person or make them uncomfortable um i like i'm coming back stacy you we, we were talking about you know the kind of being being afraid to notice that you're at that power advantage. Um, and I think another part of it is, you know, um, 
I mean, say you're say you're not afraid to notice, or you don't think you're afraid to notice that you're at that advantage. Um, but I think then, you know, understanding what that really means. And I mean, for me, I don't, I don't think I really had these kind of deep conversations with friends of mine and coworkers of mine who are black until, you know, probably, you know, around um, the murder of George Floyd. And and I think starting to have those conversations in a different way and and just you know, I, I think it's easy to think you understand how black people feel and and then hearing from friends of mine who are black how they really felt um, about George Floyd and everything going on at the time. Um, I think you know I I absolutely didn't you know, didn't comprehend the depth of the pain. Um, and so I, I think it's really hard. I think it takes a lot of listening, a lot of learning. And, and that learning can be from talking to people. That learning can be from reading. Um, but I think in order to be an ally, you need to understand and be able to put yourself in someone's shoes a little bit. It's hard to I'm do that. I'm wondering how we can get the analysis to be something along the line of, I see some injustice in action, challenge to another human being, their well-being, if you will, and the need to do something about that and the obligation to do something about that because I can becomes more important than, as Zane said, the potential consequences, like the consequence to me of not doing something is higher on my psyche than if I do something and suffer some uh, you know, financial, physical, whatever consequence. Um, it's like an integrity piece. How do we dig down to find that integrity of humanity so that we can then begin to search our identity, our, our minds, our personhood for where our power might lie? I mean, we talk about violence, right? Like sometimes people feel the only power they have is their fist. So how do we search ourselves for the power, the strategic power to make a difference and make that part of the analysis? I think, I think that that is hard, at least in all, large scale for people to think in that more kind of higher consciousness or um, like this is something that's going away on my spirit if I don't speak up rather than thinking about the financial material um, consequences because we are we are in this uh, a culture of individualism of just look out for yourself, make sure you're good. 
consume as much and, and collect as much as you can. And then um, that will be success. And so I think it would take a fundamental reworking, rethinking of our values as a society, a country, um, a profession uh, in order for that to be the widespread consensus of like, if I don't speak up about an injustice I'm seeing right now in the workplace, that's going to weigh on my spirit and, or that's just, that's just something that's not right. And I can't live with that versus whatever fear I have of losing X project or, or X opportunity or Y opportunity. Um, and so I do think that comes through reading different texts, talking to different people, having different experiences and not just reading the same book by or multiple books by the same people that you like to hear from and you're never challenged. Um, and, and that goes for all different types of people. I'm not saying this one white person, right wing person needs to always read everything that challenges their views. It's like all different types of people always need to be um, experiencing conversations, experiences with all other types of people reading different texts and really understanding the world the history that we've been brought up in and these assumptions that we make as as natural we need to rethink these um and and hopefully that would create kind of sort of a a spiritual conscious uh shift in speaking up and doing what's right and so pat as part of what you were saying about your experience after george floyd and in talking with some people who were closest close to you or closer to you that there was this um, pricking, if you will, or provocation of your consciousness to shift you to that more to that place of um, uh, of less about uh, look out for number one and don't step into number two. Yes, I think I mean like, and these are people who, you know, are people who I went to school with, people who are other attorneys or who work in other professional capacities, who, um, you know, and hearing a couple things. I think hearing how they had sacrificed or how their family had sacrificed, um, you know, and, and I think we hadn't, that's not something that comes up in everyday conversation, I guess. Um, and maybe it took something you know as terrible as George Floyd to surface those conversations um, and to kind of break the um, you know you know to to kind of bring reality home a little bit more to someone like me who I I don't feel unsafe in situations where my friends said you know I like if if I I got pulled over, I wouldn't feel unsafe. Um, but that's not the case for, you know, a, a lot of friends of mine, and and that I I just never really, really thought like that before. So we have um, just about um, a minute before we need to go to Q and A, um, and maybe if there are not a lot of questions, we can we can delve a little deeper. But I want to take that um, concept of safety and talk about also allyship as whether it's unidirectional and, and actually I think it's not. And that example that I was giving earlier about dealing with an artist, um, there was a point at which uh, a letter, we wrote a letter 
And um, one of the assertions in the letter was that um, this dealt with the person's personhood. And of course, the, 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 the lawyer who was assisting us, so I said, well, I don't know if y'all want to put that in there because right, people might feel accused of being racist and that might ratchet up the conversation. And my vice chair, white woman, right? So she had less power than me. But the fact that she was white spoke up first to say that line is staying in there. That sentence, that sentence is staying there. I had written it, but there was a moment where defending that sentence for me created, um, created a sense of vulnerability in terms of, you know, am I going too far with my own personal political views to advocate this position, though I have this, I have this responsibility as a chair, right? I need to, there needs to be some neutrality. And in that instance, I needed her to help to be an ally for me to advocate for that position because I emotionally was vulnerable and unable to advocate, I felt at risk for advocating myself for that position, even though I felt it was right. Can either of you comment on um, the concept that you don't even, like power, again, is so intersectional. She had a position that was not equivalent to mine, um, younger, but a woman and white. But yet I did feel some comfort in that. I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think for me, and, and again, I, I think so much of it is just listening and learning from other people's experiences because, you know, to give another example, um, you know, when, um, when the Dobbs decision, you know, was um, coming out, um, you know, that's something that, you know, I personally felt very strongly about, um, but I think I felt strongly about it from a policy standpoint um, and, you know, from a, a policy and politics standpoint um, and had conversations with people who I know who, you know, the conversation in some cases was, you know, I'm, I am a victim of rape. And so this has a very, very different meaning to me personally than it does to you as a policy point of importance. Um, and so I think like we're we're in a profession that like we're trained to be conservative and safe in how, you know, you know, professionally what we're doing. You know, we're not putting ourselves out on a limb. But I, I think hearing from people who have experienced that and, and how much they've been, you know, hurt. In a lot of cases, and and I think that goes, you know, and you could have countless examples of that. I mean, my putting my hand up to say something um, in defense of of those friends or, or you know colleagues or or acquaintances or whatnot is going to cause me a lot less pain than they experienced in that instance. So I think it's just you know, like realizing that. A little bit and you don't necessarily realize that until you talk to people and hear their right. real lived experiences i think that's a good point zane your thoughts about yeah. that 
Yeah, agreed. That's a that's a good point and good reminder for for anybody listening, um, because as a non-white person, I'll echo what Stacy said. It's just it's I've I've have had multiple instances where you're advocating on on behalf of of your own people, trying to create change within these systems, and a lot of times because it you know personally what these things feel like, and and you've had your own experiences, your family members' experiences, um, knowing just the history of all of this, it does become very emotional and, and, and vulnerable of like, am I getting my politics too involved here or or, or whatever the question is or, or the anxiety is, but for speaking on behalf of myself, um, it, the personal is always political. I, I forgot the, the quote and, and who that's attributed to, but um, yeah, it, it's, I, I know that we like to pretend the workplace is this neutral place, especially in, in law, but these issues, if we really want to change things fundamentally, these issues are political, they are personal, and it's all intersecting, and we have to have these honest conversations and, and just remind ourselves that maybe you never have had a personal experience with abortion, and you just have these theoretical views and opinions of it, but a lot of times these issues personally touch people personally have had to go through certain tra traumatic, horrifying experiences. Um, and, and so always having that at the top of mind when we have these discussions, I think is key. And and I think- Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just gonna say, I think too, you know, and just, you know, taking the Dobbs case, for example, I mean, I think that conversation around understanding um, you know, how women are reacting to that is particularly important in the context of, you know, pick any law firm, you know, women are very underrepresented in leadership. Um, and I think those two are very, very closely related in terms of, you know, what are the implications of that conversation, the real life implications, not the, you know, well, I, I disagree with this, or you know academically or you know policy but the real life implications and tying that to you know women are very underrepresented in law firm leadership and i think that's just one example but that sort of i mean it raises the point um and i can't remember exactly where i heard it but it had something to do with proximity and humanity that when we are in proximity to someone and we are able to appreciate their humanity, we are able to um, uh, recognize, as Zane said, that the, that the issues are less theoretical. And that seems to happen more statistically with um, same-sex relationships, for instance, that once people realize, oh, I have a cousin, I have a, you know, my daughter, my brother, my whomsoever, right? Like that's an issue um, that on both sides of the political aisle, if you will, um, there is an easing of um, attitudes related to that. How can we use or think about that in this conversation about allyship? Any thoughts about that? I think that that speaks to how we do need to keep breaking down these barriers of this. This isn't 
just an all white space um, and we continue to have these interactions intercommunal interactions um, because I think it is true that that's how humans operate it's like you may be scared of this concept theoretically and then you meet somebody who's gone through it or is a certain race or whatever um, identity and then they they start to see oh this is just another person just like me and and that's simplifying it but it, it does seem to happen in that way a lot of the times and so I think the more that we have these inclusionary spaces and more people are connecting outside of their comfort zone and who they would normally speak to that could naturally lend itself to people speaking up on behalf of others uh, and, and changing the, the actual systemic issues rather than just saying well we we pride ourselves on diversity but actually creating these equitable systems um, Zane, there's one, um, actually no, there's two, but I'm going to ask the one question because I think we got about two minutes. Um, it, it starts off about what obligation, if any, do underrepresented people in power have to be allies? So, so I, I'm going to, you know, adjust the question a little bit. You talked earlier about obligation. So is there an obligation if you are a person of color and power to be an ally? And then what does that say about white counterparts, um, sort of peers sitting in the same position? Like how can we deepen the allyship there if I've got a partner who is white like me, um, who's supposed to jump in? I, I do think that non-white people do have an obligation to be an ally um because if i if i were the person who's receiving the allyship or, or is seeking allyship and there's a, a, a black partner and they're not even willing to help me out or acknowledge the situation i would i would feel hurt i would feel frustrated angry all these things and so i think it is necessary to have those people in the workplace um, and then I'm going to interrupt you because I know we're coming down on five mm -hmm. um, to say that I think there is by doing that, the senior uh, uh, person in power, black person, person of color teaches their counterparts and teaches, um, as you say, the person that is junior, um, something about how to be an ally. Um, I think there's something in that. Agreed. Okay. Um, we are at five o'clock. So um, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, I think we could probably go on for another good while, but maybe that means they'll have to be part three. I want to thank everybody for um, their time and joining us. And I want to thank, again, the Boston Bar Association for hosting this conversation. And um, special thanks to you, Pat and Zane, for being vulnerable and discussing these hard, uh, this hard conversation. Of course, thank you. Thanks, Sam.